If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today on our show, we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Chantel Shambliss. Chantel is a wife, mother, award-winning entrepreneur, business strategist, and philanthropist. And let me say, she actually sent that line to us, but I want to tell you a little bit more about Chantel. Uh, well, she did. I mean, you know, I know I know some listeners might be laughing, and I can't believe Dolph would say that, but she did. And you know, that's what I would expect a good guest would do, right? A good guest is going to help us help them, right? They're going to be like, hey, here's some great stuff that you can say about me. And I have to say, there's so much great stuff to say about Chantel. So let me just share a little bit with you, a little bit about her with you. So first of all, not only is she the principal consultant at a boutique consulting practice known as Nonprofitability, she also is the founder and executive director of Dress for Success in Central Virginia and a managing partner with Mahogany Suites. So it is safe to say that Chantel not only has impressive business and nonprofit cred, but she's also an incredibly busy person. For the past 18 years, she's been doing coaching and consulting with nonprofits and purpose-driven leaders to build stronger, more sustainable organizations, communities, and brands. Her work has been recognized by lots of media outlets, ABC, CBS, National Association of Women Business Owners, Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, and others. Now, like myself, Chantel is the principal consultant of her own boutique firm, which I've already kind of said, which is Nonprofitability. And let me also do a quick aside. I love the name of my firm, Successful Nonprofits, but Nonprofitability, that is a great name. Oh my gosh, I adore that name. And also like me, her consulting practice has niched down. So the best consulting practices aren't those where the person says, oh, my consulting practice is for every nonprofit. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of nonprofits across the country. It's those that niche down and say, this is the kind of nonprofit I want to work with. And this is the specific type of work I want to do. 
So she has niched down to equip nonprofits and faith-based organizations and give them proven tools and practices that help promote sustainability. Hey, Chantel, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're with us today. I am so glad to be with you today, doll. Thank you for having me. So as I've already said in the intro, I love the name of your consulting practice, Nonprofitability. But um, thank you. You got to tell me the origin story of that name, <laughs> because somehow I have a feeling like you didn't you didn't just read that somewhere that that evolved somewhere. Tell me about it. So the name is so funny when listening to you talk about the name. I started laughing immediately because I remember the day that I came up with the name. Um, for a long time, I just been consulting as myself and I got into a really heated debate in New Orleans of all places, right? Where, you know, you're supposed to be happy in New Orleans. <laughs> but I got into a really heated debate at a conference about nonprofits. A coach, like a business coach, said a line that I'm sure you've heard before and all of your listeners have heard before. If you want to do something free, start a nonprofit. And I was infuriated. And I just like, nonprofits can be profitable too. And I'm like, going on my whole tangent about, you know, how nonprofits of today are not what we, you know, what they were originally for. They weren't like the soup kitchen or the clothing closet. That's not the modern day nonprofit. And on the plane ride back, I was just doing like some branding and marketing work. And it just like hit me like a lightning bolt, like profitability, non-profitability. And I'm like on a plane from New Orleans to Virginia, like, yes, that's it. That's my brand. That is my brand. I'm going to make nonprofits profitable. And that is how nonprofitability was born. <laughs> and then, of course, probably as soon as you landed, you went to Who Is and you're like, wait, is nonprofitability.com available? Oh, thank goodness oh, I, it's available. I can buy it. I, I totally did it on the plane. I'm <laughs> like, oh, buying this domain name right now. Oh, my um, gosh. Yes. Yeah, so I, I love that. So it's so important to you that you're like, I'm also willing to spend the $14.95 for Delta or American Airlines to get internet access. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I have paid a small fortune in in-air Wi-Fi. <laughs> I get the best ideas up there, right? And I cannot risk landing and getting busy and forgetting. So yeah, I have a vast, a small fortune in in-air Wi-Fi. <laughs> You and I have this in common, by the way. I, I started my consulting practice. We officially, uh, we had a soft launch in fall of 2014. We had our hard launch in January 2015. And at first, the consulting practice was named after me. So it was the Goldenberg Group. And about the same time, I had a book come out that was called Successful Nonprofits Built Supercharged Boards. And then I think, gosh, I think it was like July 2016 is when we launched the Successful Nonprofits podcast. And so for me, it was not necessarily a lightning bolt, but what I noticed is that I was spending all of this time and energy really supporting two brands. You know, one brand yeah. was the Goldenberg Group, LLC, and then the other brand was successful nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then, of course, Donald Trump got elected president at the end of 2016. And suddenly, I didn't really like having something named after myself. You know, like, I just, I, I want nothing in common with that man. And and so I so every single time I would introduce myself as being with the Goldenberg Group, I was just like, "This is just distasteful to me." Does my name really have to be on it? And so from there was a pretty quick transition. So it was not a lightning bolt. It was for me. It was an evolution of like of 
of at, at first, yeah, I'm going to be the Goldenberg Group, and then realizing I had two brands, and then realizing that um, I'm, we're in a day and age where no one no one should be so invested in their own name that they that they put it everywhere. They just shouldn't be. So it was it was an easy one. I love it. Yeah, I was very intentional about the fact that I wanted my consulting firm to be separate from me, and because I'm a sustainability junkie, right? So I don't want some CEO running the company that still says Chantel Chambliss when I'm like 15 years dead. So <laughs> we want to we want to keep we want to create companies that we can build and and scale and eventually sell, and they can go on and on and on. And sometimes that may that means name disassociation, right? Yep, absolutely. I, 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 by the way, I love your take on that, that I want this to live beyond me. And when I've been dead for 15 years, I don't want someone using my name in ways I would not approve of. I love that. Now, I know some of the work, at least based on your blog, I believe some of the work you're doing is actually around fundraising. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's so critical. So the end game for nonprofitability is to build nonprofits that last, that are sustainable. And fundraising is just a part, it's a huge part of that. Like, how do we fulfill these missions with no money? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I do, I do a lot of work that revolves around fundraising and I work with startups and that's their most burning, pressing concern. So we have to talk money, right? And, and I agree with you. It is often the most burning, pressing concern for startups. But where I'm going to push back is certainly with my work with organizations, and while I don't really do fundraising consulting, fundraising consulting is a pressing concern for the $1 million organization, for the $5 million, for the $10 million. You know, no matter what size an organization is, it almost always wants to be doing 10% more, which means it needs 10% more money. Absolutely. It's kind of like in the sales business where it's like always be closing, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in the nonprofit world. You can never stop fundraising. It's it's literally your lifeline. I just have to ask, you know, since you just referenced Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, ABC, <laughs> always be closing. Have you ever done a fundraising training where you stop someone from getting coffee and you go, coffee's for closers? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> Next training, that's happening. <laughs> oh my gosh. Now, and I really don't do a lot of fundraising work. Now I want to do a fundraising training just so I can do that to someone, just so I can actually put a pot of coffee in the bag and then say to someone, hey, Jack, coffee's for closers. When you get the gift, that's when you can have a cup of coffee. Otherwise, sit in the chair. <laughs> I'm going to hope that my next training is recorded so I can do that and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I mean, obviously you probably have to tell the person up front that you're going to do that to them so that, you know, so that, so that it does not derail your entire training so that at least someone is in on the joke. Everyone else will be appalled, but you need one person in on that joke, don't you? Oh, oh that's hilarious. So let's talk about, about that closing. What is like the perfect, and by the way, this is, this is a softball from your blog and I know that, but you know what, and, and by the way, this is also a great promo for your blog at nonprofitability.org, but what is the perfect money pitch? Oh my goodness. So where I go with the money pitch is that remember that the donor is not donating to your mission or your cause. They're donating to their mission or their mm -hmm. cause. So if you really want to knock it out of the park, you're going to appeal to what's most important to them, 
that aligns with your mission. Like if you are not a cat person, doll, I can't sell my cat rescue to you. I just can't because you could care less, right? You're like, put them all down. I, I hate every cat. I, I hate cats. I hate the lion king. I hate it all. <laughs> so when I'm teaching like to make the ask, it's know your donor. Know your donor and know what their mission is. And if it aligns with your mission, then you that's your starting point and usually how you're going to get them to the finish line. It's what's their mission and how do they want to see it move forward. So it just depends on who you are, right? What your pitch line is going to be. If you are a dog lover and I am running an SBCA, you know, that houses all types of animals, I'm not going to talk to you about the reptiles. I am going to appeal to you what the cost is to keep another dog alive or off the streets or or whatever, right? I'm going to appeal to what your mission is. And I have to say, share with you, I love that you said you're not going to talk about the reptiles. And admittedly, my husband and I, we we don't have any animals. We're not particularly pet people. We wish them no harm, but you know, we, we're not. Partic- right. Unlike your hypothetical person who's like, put them all down. We wish them no harm. <laughs> Let me be clear. But, but we're just not particularly pet people. But my husband is terrified of snakes and reptiles. It's like if we take our nieces to the zoo, I've got to take them into the reptile house. He will not go into the reptile house. So yeah, if the SPCA were to approach us and be like, oh, will you please help support our life-saving work with reptiles? My husband would be like, no, I'm not going to. Like even probably if his best friend asked him, he would say no to that. Now, if his best friend asked him for cats or dogs or bunnies, okay, yeah, he would say, yeah, which Mm -hmm. was... Which is the other thing I was going to say, we're going to kind of touch on is I kind of feel like the perfect money pitch is not that pitch of, well, you know, I have this board member, Joe, and I know that Joe's friends won't tell him no. So, you know, we're going to ask Joe to go ask people who won't say no, right? Like that's, that's just a terrible money pitch. That's a guilt or a relationship money pitch. It's a guilt trip and it is totally not sustainable because- I may do it once because Joe is asking, but the next time around, I'm like, hey, man, I don't have it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I have it because it it didn't give me when people give money, you know, they get that dopamine thing. Right. So the first time around, because Joe asked me and I want to feel good for giving it to him, it works. But when I realized that I don't get that feeling when I give to Joe for this cause, I'm going to stop. Right. But every time, you know, when my monthly uh, sponsorship comes out for my sponsored child in Guatemala, every time I see that come out of my bank account or I see the handwritten note to say the kid is starting third grade and I was able to help purchase raincoats and shoes, I get a small adrenaline or a dopamine rush, right? If that feeling ever stops, I'm going to stop giving because it's no longer my cause. Right. So, yeah, the whole go ask people who you know won't say no is a horrible one. Right. It's also horrible because, hey, when Joe, your board member, leaves your board, guess what? You you lose you lose that person's gift. And, Absolutely. And Joe hates it because Joe knows that if he comes and asks me to give $100 to the Cuddly Puppy Foundation, I'm probably mm-hmm. going to give $100 to the Cuddly Puppy Foundation. But when I'm doing the Alzheimer's walk, I'm probably going to go ask Joe to give money to the Alzheimer's walk. Yeah. And Joe's gonna going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So then it kind of almost becomes diminishing returns. So Joe hates it too, because Joe knows that I'm going to come back and ask him for my cause. Right. And I actually use that example with a client. It's That's like the bartering system, right? 
And that's why, yeah, bartering still works in some areas of the world. But have you noticed we don't do that in America anymore? Because it, the value diminished so drastically that it, it became worthless. Where it used to be very valuable, I could give you two goats and you give me a chicken, right? And those were very valuable. But after a while, it just starts to diminish. So like, you know, now I'm scratching your back when my back doesn't itch. So I don't even really need you to scratch my back. You should be cultivating real relationships with real people who are really interested in your mission because it's their mission, right? But, you know, so often when, as organizations, we are training our volunteer solicitors to go and ask for money, so often they're really afraid to ask anyone who who they don't believe is going to automatically say yes. So Joe might come to me, that, you know, fictional board member might come to me because he knows I'm going to give a hundred bucks. So he's like, well, I know Dolph's going to do it, but he's afraid to approach, you know, maybe someone else for that $100, someone who right. might be even more inclined to actually want to really support the Cuddly Puppy Foundation. So, you know, we're, we're not going to personalize it to the ASPCA. I know someone will be upset if I do, but, you know, but, but we'll, you know, the Cuddly Puppy Foundation. So how, how can we help those volunteer solicitors be less afraid of asking? So what I've suggested when it comes to volunteer solicitors, because remember, they are it goes back to that good feeling, right? They are volunteering because they want they want to feel good about themselves and and how they're helping their community. And nothing feels worse than rejection. It's the worst feeling on earth, except for like childbirth. Trust me, I know. <laughs> so. so what I've done is put your volunteers in positions to win. Instead of asking them to go door to door or to cold call, maybe have them host a cocktail party at their house where they're surrounded by friends and family and you you can even invite people they don't know, but they're on their turf. It's kind of on their terms. And they don't even have to make the ask. I work with a nonprofit. We hosted or I helped them put together a cocktail party at a pretty pretty wealthy donor's home, invited some of the people on their mailing list that they wanted to cultivate the relationship with. The donor didn't know these people personally, but the donor didn't have to because the people that they knew knew these people. And, and then the executive director got up and thanked everyone for coming and made the ask and then say, hey, go, you know, go have more wine and cheese, right? And so her volunteer feels like they contributed, and they did, because anyone who gave at that cocktail party is a direct result of the host. And so you put your volunteers in positions where they don't have to make these cold, hard asks. You know, they can help out in other ways. They can go find items for a raffle or a silent auction. And then I realized another thing with volunteers is to make to cultivate them into donors themselves, right? People are much more apt to ask someone else for money for a cause if they are also giving money to the cause. If they're just volunteering and not giving financially, it's going to be super hard for them to ask someone else to do that. Uh, I have to to share with you on the rare occasions when I've done fundraising trainings for boards. And typically when I do them, it's a because I used to be once upon a time I was a fundraiser. So on the rare occasions when I do them, it's an organization that's already a client, and they're like, "Can you just do this? You already know the organization, you know the people. Can you do it?" And I'll and so I'll step up and I'll do it. But so on the rare occasions when I've done fundraising trainings, I'm always really clear: like, make your first gift first. Like, make your commitment tonight. Don't mm-hmm. don't go out and ask anybody for a penny until you've made your gift. And if you're going to be asking people to make a substantial gift, you need to make a gift that's substantial for your family. 
Absolutely. Especially because I do a lot of work with startups executive director or the board, they're afraid to ask volunteers for money because they're like, oh, they're already giving us so much of their time. But this is a trickle down effect, right? And if they are not giving to you financially, they will never convince someone else to give to you financially. See, and it's funny, that's exactly what I say about volunteers as well. It's kind of like our staff and our board. Our volunteers, our staff and our board have a backstage pass and a front row seat to whatever life-changing work your organization is doing, whether that's saving, mm-hmm. saving cuddly puppies, feeding homeless people, educating mm-hmm. underprivileged children, whatever it is. And so if that backstage pass and front row seat do not make them say, yeah, I want to put some of my resources here, even if it's, you know, what might be thought of as the widow's might, 10 bucks a month or whatever, right. if they're not willing to put something there, chances are they're not going to ask anyone else either. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things back when I was a development director, we're going back, gosh, a little while now, but uh, you know, we're going back like 18, 19 years. But back when I was a, when I was a development director, one of the things that I did with our board, and it was always really, it was well received is, well, that's not true. At first, when I would say we're going to do it, there was groans in the room. But by the end, people were like, oh, I'm so glad we did this. And by the way, the very next year when we did it again, there would be groans in the room. They forgot how glad they were that we had done it. But but it's role playing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, so where we actually we assign people the role of solicitor and prospect and, you know, and everybody gets to play different roles, you know, and sometimes it's eager prospect. Sometimes it's reluctant prospect, but everyone gets to play different roles. And I went to social work school. And one of the things that I know from social work school is we all hated role play, but it also helped us start to create those talk tracks of how we were going to be having in social work school, how we're going to be having conversations with our clients. But for fundraisers and volunteer fundraisers too, it's how they're going to be having conversations with their prospects and how they're actually going to get the words out. The Cuddly Puppy Foundation needs you to consider a gift of $500 this year. Yeah. So we actually do that in our board retreats and trainings for dresser success, right? There's role playing and there's their scenarios and case studies to say, hey, this donor A looks like this and these are the talking points and let's practice that. Because one important thing about role playing, because everyone hates it, right? It's horrible. (laughs) It's the worst thing ever. Except those of us that facilitate it. We we felt these sadists. We love doing it. I love doing it because I'm not actually role playing. (laughs) 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 But what role playing does it gets us to see it from both when it's not happening. It's like watching a movie, right? I get to see how to escape the purge because I watch the purge. So now when the purge happens, I know how to get out. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. It's like a, it's like a, a evacuation plan so that when you get into these tough conversations, you know what to say, you know what to do. And the most important thing about donor conversations, especially for a board, is that everyone is talking the same talk. Mm -hmm. Everyone is speaking the same language. There's nothing more frustrating than when I walk into train a board and I'll ask everyone the same question and everyone is giving me a different answer. That is overwhelming and confusing to a potential donor. And automatically I'm going to go, yeah, I'm not interested, right? Because I don't even know what you guys are talking about because you're speaking five different languages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other thing, and let me let me ask you, let me take your temperature on this one. The other thing that I've always recommended to solicitors, and then I always give a caveat on it too, <clears throat> is if you're soliciting someone and you're uncomfortable, 
whether you're the executive director or a board member or whatever, you should acknowledge that upfront with, with that prospect. You should say, hey, Bob, I need to tell you, I am really uncomfortable, but I know because I care about this cause so much that I need to ask you for this gift. Yeah. And and then you say, Bob, the Cuddly Puppy Foundation really needs you to consider a gift of $500 this year. And the miracle behind saying, behind telling somebody you're uncomfortable, and this is human nature, unless the person is a sadist, they want to make you feel comfortable. Well, I'm serious. Like, you know, you know, so, yeah. so the per- the prospect, you know, Bob, this fictional prospect, you know, unless Bob is a sadist, Bob is going to be like, I don't want this person to feel uncomfortable. So they're either going to say no in the most gentle way, or they're going to do something. Even if they originally inclined for nothing, they're going to say, well, can I do a hundred dollars? Or, right. you know, if you'd ask for 5,000, well, can I do a thousand? Because they're going to want you to feel comfortable. They're going to have mad respect that you put yourself in a place where you're uncomfortable, but they're also going to want to make you feel comfortable. You know, kind of like if you walk into someone's home and you're like, oh my gosh, my shoes are killing me. They're going to say, well, would you like to kick them off? Even if they really don't want you to kick the shoes off, they're going to say that. Now, the other thing I, whenever I talk to boards about this, the other thing I also say is it is fine to tell people that until you're no longer uncomfortable doing it. Because if you're using it as a trick, it's just insincere manipulation. Right. You know, it's so like, I'm not at all shy now about asking people for money because I've done it so much and so often. So if I were to walk into someone's office or home and say that to them, my body language wouldn't say that I'm uncomfortable. And, you know, the way I was talking would not say that I'm uncomfortable. And the person would be like, Doll's trying to manipulate me. No, I'm not doing squat for Doll. <laughs> I have this saying called Kill the Sleazy Car Salesman, right? I know that's horrible. But what I've realized, it's the main reason non-salespeople hate asking for money. They feel like a car salesman. They feel, and everyone has this old, horrible vision in their head of that old sleazy car salesman with his slick back hair, and he's coming to sell you this lemon that is going to break down as soon as you drive off the lot, right? And I think by owning that and saying, hey, I'm really nervous. One, it makes you human again, and it kind of rips that away. The person that you're talking to instantly sees that you're not trying to sell them a limit. And so I think being honest about that upfront, yes, it works perfectly. Like you said, if you tell someone, oh my gosh, my feet are killing me because your feet are genuinely killing you, they're going to say, hey, kick your shoes off, even if they want you to keep them on. But you're also right in the sense that once you aren't, I could never walk into a place and go, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I don't know how to, it, it's going to look, it's going to look like I'm putting on a whole act, right? Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I don't know how to ask you for this $500 when I totally could walk in here and ask you for $500,000, right? So you have to play to your strengths. If you really are nervous, say you're nervous. But if you're really not nervous, like, ask for money. Ask, make the ask. Um, so yeah, I am totally on board with that. Tell people you're nervous. They are probably hoping that you are nervous because it makes you human. Mm-hmm. And if you're not nervous and genuinely not nervous, you appear more just knowledgeable, right? And more experienced. Right. Versus if you're really scared and you're trying to do it and be super confident, you look like you're hiding something. Right. Would you consider a gift of 500 or even 50, just $50? Would you do $50? And suddenly the person's like, whoa, this is a used car salesperson. Exactly. You know, so it's like 
people want to know you're not selling them a lemon, that you're not taking their money. And, you know, we hear it all the time that you're not taking their money and, you know, paying some lavish executive director salary. They want to know that you are genuinely raising money to move a mission forward. And so I think just keeping that human component in there, you don't have to walk in and kick down the door um, in your best suit and, and, and be all sales pitchy, for lack of a better word. So there's one thing I'm going to challenge you now on, Chantel. And, oh. oh, I know. I know we're looking at each other now. Oh, you just, <laughs> you, you just hit my third rail. That phrase, lavish exec- executive director salary, mm-hmm. because lavish is in the eye of the beholder. And so I just want to make sure, and maybe it's, maybe it's not even challenging you so much. I should rephrase that. I should be a good host and I should rephrase that. It's not even challenging oh. you so much as making sure that we're managing expectations with our listeners and making sure they understand, right? Because because lab, as we talk to donors, lavish executive director salary is really subjective. So for a lot of people, and by the way, I've been working on a blog post in my head that has not hit the typewriter, and I've been working on it for about three and a half years now. But <laughs> I bet it's the same one I'm working on. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's an amazing blog post. I cannot wait to pound it out on some flight somewhere. But here's the blog post, Chantel. My brother is worth about twice what I'm worth. And the reason my brother is worth, really my brother and his family are worth about what me and my, about twice what me and my family are worth. And the reason is, when my brother was in school, he was an engineering student and he did an internship where he got paid $30 an hour to do his internship, which, you know, if, if you make that a full-time rate, that's about sixty-two, sixty-three $63,000 a year. I've not done the math. And, you know, we're talking 1990 where $30 an hour was a lot more than it, yeah, a lot more than it is now. Yeah. My brother and I are three years apart. When I did my social work internship, I got paid bupkis. I got paid the great experience of having a social work internship. Consequently, when my brother graduated from college, you know, my brother wouldn't consider any job making less than 75000 a year because he was making 30 bucks an hour as an intern. I was offered a job. I should be ashamed to admit this, but I'm not. 1994, I was offered a job making $18,000 a year with the organization. Yeah, yeah, with the organization that I had done my internship with. And my reaction really was, oh my God, I used to do this for free. You mean you're going to pay me to do this? So let me be clear that, that you know, lavish salaries in the eye of the beholder. And most of the people that were going and asking for money, a hundred a salary of 100000 or 150000 for a really strong, competent executive, most of those donors aren't going to think that's that much money. And I think sometimes in the nonprofit sector, we get stuck in this poverty mindset of, oh, well, you know, if we paid our executive director 55000 we'd be putting that on our 990 and no one would give us money. Guess what? The people who are going to give you real money are making a quarter million dollars a year. And they're <clears> going to look and see your EDs only making 55000 and think, what kind of, no matter how great your ED is, what kind of ED do you have that's going to work for that little? Sorry, I'm off my soapbox now, but but I, I was like, oh, don't do that to me, Chantel. Well, you jump, you jump down because I'm going to jump up on it, right? <laughs> Go, you, you jump up, you jump up. So my background, my first job in the nonprofit sector was essentially founding my nonprofit, right? So I literally that paid real well, to- didn't it? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I was like, what am I doing here? It wasn't even like, oh, the drastic change in money. It was really the shift in the mindset. When I would pull up to functions when I was an HR executive driving my luxury vehicle, it was like, oh, that's cute. Right. But when I pull up to a fundraiser in the same vehicle, 
oh, well, how, how much is she making? And I'm like, what is happening here, right? Hold on. People really would gossip that? Oh, I got an email that wanted to know how I could afford to drive the car that I drive. I don't know. I'm, I've been working since I was 15 years old, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> okay, uh, I got to unpack that real quick. How much money was that person that sent that email giving? None. And that was my next point. The people who question every dime that goes in and out of this door are usually like my in-kind givers. They're the people who give like clothes and shoes. And and those are things that we do absolutely need to run the organization. But I cannot go to the power company and say, please take these five suits in exchange for electricity, right? Really? Hold on. Really? You mean the executives at at the power company won't do that? I'm shocked. I'm just shocked. Well, I just, listen, it's, it amazes me how much mindset shifting and explaining we have to do about the cost that goes into running a nonprofit, especially the people cost. You know, people feel like, well, you go into social, you don't go into social work for the money, but you don't go into social work to be poor, right? You go into it because you have a passion for it. But I also went into HR because I had a passion for it. And I, I was paid really, really well in HR. And now that I've transitioned to this sector, I still deserve to be compensated accordingly, right? And just like you said, I I essentially am doing workforce development in my in the nonprofit that I run. And I was doing workforce development in corporate America, but for some reason on this side of the tracks, it's worth less than half. It's worth less than half. And it, it, I still, I've been in the nonprofit sector now almost 10 years, and it still doesn't make sense to me. And it's kind of behind the nonprofitability name. When I go into organizations and I'm helping them build, if they have an executive director that's not paid, which is a plague in the sector, it is a plague. How many nonprofit executive directors are not paid or they are paid but don't have any paid staff? So they essentially lean on volunteers 40 hours a week. And if a volunteer doesn't come through, so what? You pick it up. You're the only paid employee. That is my first order of business. How do we get the executive director paid or how do we get them some paid support so that they can, you know, not work 80 hours a week on a 20 hour <laughs> on a 20 hour salary? So, yeah, that that's my soapbox for today. Uh, I could not agree with you more. And for me, that that's where sustainability really comes into play. If mm-hmm. you've got if you've got a free executive director, and they might be great. You know, maybe they're a retired executive and they're great. If you got a free executive director or if you are paying your executive director well below market, your organization is only sustainable as long as they're in your organization. So yeah. you know, if you can't post that position and re- within a reasonable period of time, you know, most executive searches take more than a month, but within a reasonable period of time, find someone who's willing to do that work for the same compensation, you do not have a sustainable organization. And at all, you know, and, and I end up doing a lot of transition work. I don't do searches, but I do a lot of executive director transition work. Mm-hmm. And, and I cannot tell you how often I have organizations that will come to me and, and I'm not, Chantel, I'm not making this up. They will come to me and they will say, Dolph, we are looking for our next chief executive. We want someone who can bring in six figure gifts manage current staff. We have about a dozen employees grow us over the next three to five years into 25 or 30 employees. And that means also grow our, our impact by two and a half mm-hmm. or three times. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know, what, what kind of budget are you looking at? And they say, well, we're currently paying our executive director 45,000 and we're willing to pay up to 55,000. 
<clears throat> and my response, because I hold no punches. Yeah, I know you're laughing, Chantel. Yeah, I, I, I hold no punches. My response is always, so you want someone who's willing to ask for six-figure gifts, but not ask for a six-figure salary. I don't want that person. Right. They that have, is not right. your six-figure person, right? It's it's totally, you just negated every goal you set for yourself. We want to grow this much. We want to raise this much. You just negated every single goal by saying, but we want someone to do it and we're going to pay them peanuts, essentially. Right, right. Or one of the mandatory requirements is that either they inherited money or they're in a relationship with someone who has enough money that they don't have to care about it. And that should be a no one's job description. You know, no min- minimum no. requirement must have income from other sources because we're not <laughs> going to pay you enough. That should totally be a new line. I'm going to start reposting <laughs> ads for EDs and going, oh, hey, here, I fixed it for you. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's oh, my gosh. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I may actually create a joke uh, executive director job description now just for giggles, just for giggles. Um, please, oh, my please gosh. tag me in that. <laughs> Are you kidding? You're going to co-author it with me, Chantel. Yes. Um, oh. oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's funny. We we uh, we we scheduled an hour for recording. We are already at the end of that hour, and we have not done everything we're supposed to do, Chantel. So That's- I'm... So I'm going to get down to business and, okay. it's, and it's the serious business of asking you the off the map question. Now, in every episode, we like to ask our guests an off the map question that allow our listeners to get to know them a little bit more, get to know the person behind the profession. And so Chantel, as we were preparing for this show, I made the discovery that your first major in college was not HR. It wasn't business. It wasn't social work. This seems kind of appropriate since you're the founder of Dress for Success in Central Virginia. It was fashion. It was. It was. I actually have an associate in fashion merchandising. Uh, fashion is and was still my first love. Uh, but I had an advisor who essentially pulled me to the side one day and said, you know, you're not going to make any money doing that, right? <laughs> Listen, I'm a little poor girl from the South who grew up in the project. Like, what? I'm not, I went to college and I'm not going to make any money. Change my major today. (laughs) But I was like at the end of the program. So I finished the program and went back to that same advisor and asked, like, what should I do? And what I really wanted to do was go to law school, right? But I felt like I couldn't afford it. And he told me, he said, HR is more important in an organization than lawyers. If you're not going to go to law school, I wanted to be a corporate attorney. He said, become an HR major. They're more important in the organization. And I wanted to be the most important person in the business. (laughs) So somehow or another, I ended up in an HR degree after that. But yeah, my very first degree was in fashion merchandising. It's funny, I, I do like some little sidebar consulting for three fashion brands right now. I still love fashion very much. Very, very cool. I knew there was going to be a good story behind going to fashion school. So I was like, I got to know why you went to fashion school. That's very cool. Chantel, it has been so great spending some time with you. And I am so grateful. I Obviously, I record a lot of podcast episodes. I rarely smile and laugh this much. I've just had such a good time on this episode. Thank you. Now, listeners, if you were inspired by Chantel's words today and have yourself thinking, hey, 
non-profitability. That could be the boutique consulting firm that can help me address the challenges that I'm facing. You can learn from her down-to-earth and easy-to-digest advice at her blog at nonprofitability.org. Now, additionally, if you want to connect with Chantel more personally, make sure that you reach out to her at her personal website, drchantelchambliss.com. Now, we're going to have both of those URLs in our show notes. I encourage you to go check it out. I'd also encourage you to subscribe to her email list through nonprofitability.org. Chantel, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing Friday afternoon. (laughs) It was awesome. If you were busy Googling nonprofit consultants doing fundraising training in my area and did not write down Chantel's URL, don't worry. You can get Chantel's contact information through our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Now, did you know that we also have an email list you can join? I know right now you're thinking, really, Dolph? I may like the podcast, but I get way too much email. Why on God's beautiful green earth would I want to join another email list, even yours? Now, let me give you the case for it. First of all, we never email more than once a week. So that means, you know, you've signed up for some list and suddenly you're getting two emails a day and you're like, I can't stop it. Well, we we only email once a week. And in that weekly email, we share our blog of the week. We share a fun meme. We share other resources that might be of use for you. Like, for example, if we see something great come through Chantel's blog, we might, you know, share a link to that in our weekly email blast. So I would encourage you to visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com and sign up for our email list. Let me also just assure you, we don't sell the list. We don't rent the list. And we're very respectful if someone says, hey, will you take me off? We take you off. So this is not the list that you can't get off of. Dear listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.